Fascinating people, fascinating places. G'day and welcome to the Dan Mainwaring Podcast. This is where we talk to and about the famous and the infamous, the celebrated and the obscure, the well-known and the undiscovered. Interviews, articles and discussion from around the globe. In the years that followed World War II, after decades, and in some cases centuries, of colonial rule, hundreds of millions of Africans gained independence from European control. But the scourge of colonialism lived on in South Africa, where descendants of settlers and other European immigrants further subjugated 90% of the population through an overtly racist policy of segregation known as apartheid. Non-whites couldn't vote, date, live alongside, or go to school with white people. Their movements were controlled through an internal pass system, and many of them were even stripped of their right to citizenship. In this episode, I talked to someone who grew up within that dystopian system and saw its eventual fall. Habiba Badarun is an Associate Professor of Women's, Gender and Sexuality Studies, and African Studies at Penn State. She's also an award-winning poet. Her very name has significance to her heritage, and indeed her country's, as Habiba explained to me. So it's an Arabic name, but if you ask people who speak Arabic as a first language or in other parts of the world, many of them will not recognize my name. And the reason is because of the way that Arabic is spoken in South Africa, which has very much been shaped by similar aspirated sounds in Khoisan languages, in Afrikaans, etc. So I've just recently visited Morocco and people didn't recognize my name as a, an Arabic name. And eventually they said, ah, Habiba. And, you know, they said it in a, with a slightly different aspiration. And I said, yes, in South Africa, we say ha, Habiba, you know, which is a flatter aspiration sound. And it has to do with these other languages that are spoken alongside Arabic. And I, so I love that, actually. I love the fact that my name represents the specificity of being in South Africa. And Islam actually arrived in the Cape Colony because of slavery. And so part of the remarkable reality of being Muslim in South Africa is, at least in the strand of being Muslim, that a survival through the, the, the really terribly violent period of, of, of enslavement. And so, yeah, that is also some, a part of my legacy that I'm, I'm very attached to and I'm very proud of. I feel very moved by the, the memory of that. I read an article of yours in which you said there's a connection from apartheid that runs all the way back to the very first days of Dutch settlement in South Africa and the introduction of slavery. In what ways is that link most obviously manifested? It's present in obvious terms. For instance, the pass laws were established during the period of slavery, which were intended to limit and regulate the movement of enslaved people and served people within the colonies. And these pass laws became eventually the the Dompas law, the, the infamous pass law of apartheid. There's also the word coloured, 
for instance, is precisely that word that was used to um, the term for emancipated slaves in the immediate emancipation, post-emancipation period. And that word colored then becomes reinvented and loses its connection to slavery, but becomes one of the, the categories of a racial classification uh, under apartheid, under the Population Registration Act. And so there are ways in which the legacy of slavery is both very clear and it's also subsumed, it's more subterranean. And the reason for that, for instance, is the ways in which violence is intricately embedded in South African history from that period, the colonial period, and the period of enslavement. So spectacular violence is used to punish recalcitrant slaves because enslaved people constituted the majority of the population um, of the colony, of the Cape Colony, for instance, at some point. So there was a a great deal of anxiety about um, the meaning of slave rebellion and slave resistance. The building in of extreme violence is is part of the legacy that slavery leaves for the later periods, and especially apartheid. And then one thing that I think is almost never discussed is the ways in which sexual violence, for instance, is built into the period of slavery and then very much is continued as part of what we then become uh, becomes apartheid and even post-apartheid. Uh, history in South Africa. Sexual violence and and sexual slavery were built into the system of slavery at the Cape. And this, unfortunately, this this manifestation of extreme sexual violence is something that also is a legacy that apartheid takes up and that even the post-apartheid period has has not addressed sufficiently because, unfortunately, because of the, the way in which patriarchy was used as, as part of the mechanisms of slavery and uh, slaveholding society and, and apartheid society. Of course, we, we didn't understand that matters of gender were central to the country's history. They all seemed to be secondary or on the edges. And whereas it really has, uh, we now know, is one of the central defining features of that slaveholding period, which has lingered on unfortunately, even into the post-apartheid period. So there are ways in which slavery is very evident, and then there are other ways in which we have to think more clearly and carefully about its legacies. And I always remember hearing a lecture by Deborah Thomas, the sociologist, the uh, Jamaican-American sociologist, who arrived in Cape Town, she says, and this was her, her phrase, I recognized Cape Town the first time I saw it. And what she recognized was that Cape Town, like Jamaica, was a post-slavery society and that it carries those legacies, those lingering marks on its physical landscape and the way in which people relate to one another and in other less uh, evident ways as well. Following up on one point there, you were talking about sexual violence. With South African society being patriarchal, for women then during apartheid, was it effectively two levels of discrimination, one based on race, another one based on gender? I think there were definitely additional ways in which gender impacted people under apartheid. Black men experienced particular 
ways apartheid and black women did and white women and, and white men did also because apartheid had really fervent expectations of gender for, for white people as well. But let me give you an example of what it meant to be a black woman under apartheid. My mother was a very remarkable and is a very remarkable woman in that she entered medical school in the 1950s when this was almost impossible. She was one of three women in her class of medical school. And uh, she graduated in 1963, after which she spent most of her career in the government uh, medical services. So various employers who were various levels of government. And as an employee of the government, she was paid one third of what her white employer, fellow employees were paid for the same job. In fact, she was offered a senior supervisory position over her white colleagues and would be paid far less than them. And this is less than what her male colleagues earned. So there were interlocking ways in which gender and, and racial oppression were under apartheid. And that is very much uh, a legacy of the longer history of the way gender worked during colonialism and slavery. For your parents' generation, they were part of the generation who were suddenly forced to move to particular areas kicked out of their established neighborhoods. As a kid growing up, what you know recollections do you have of your parents in terms of how they may have talked about how society had, I guess, devolved would be the word rather than evolved from when they were younger until you were a young child? I remember those conversations very well. They didn't speak often about it. And I think this thinking about it now must be because of the trauma of that loss. In fact, it happened a year before my parents married and therefore a year before I was born. What they would say about those neighborhoods sounded to me like paradise. These were mixed neighborhoods and mixed in all kinds, obviously racially, but also in terms of profession. There were factory workers who lived next to much more socially eminent people. And um, my family included uh, factory workers and, and building trade contractors. And in fact, most of the men in my family continue to work in the building trade um, to this day. So there was a mixture of religions, obviously racially mixed, and mixture of classes. And it just felt like something of an ancient history that almost had never existed. Certainly for me. I mean, I, I couldn't imagine such a such a neighborhood. And so occasionally when they would speak about it, it would be infused for me with some paradisal loss. For my parents, it was much harsher. It was much more traumatic. You're right that they, they lost a sense of neighborhood. They lost a sense of community. And there were ways in which that loss was never overcome. I remember my grandfather, for instance, in the new house where they lived, which was far from, from where they had been removed from, he still went to the same shops to buy his bread and his cheese. And he, he never grew out of the habits that had formed around their own neighborhood. They still had the same friends. They, they still tried to see people, although of course it was much harder. And so the, the presence of that loss was, was 
very, very real, very fresh all the time. And of course, the irony continues in that we, the children of my mother, went to the same schools that she did as a child. And those schools were in walking distance of their old house. So we still went to the same areas every day. And that trip, which took 45 minutes, where it might have taken a 10-minute walk, 45 minutes by car, every day it rehearsed the loss for my parents. Going that long distance that felt so cruel and unnecessary, that happened every single day. And they got angry every single day. Um, they revisited what they had lost every single day. So I think for, for my parents, it was um, an unending loss. And for me, it was a loss that I inherited, not something that I've experienced myself, but very much a heritage of loss. So that one's own home was always shadowed by loss. At the point in time, apartheid was bringing out this legislation, the rest of Africa was transitioning from colonial rule to independence. And I was curious, within South Africa, in terms of media coverage, newspaper, television, was it pretty open to where you knew about countries like Zaire, where they, at that time anyway, seemed to be moving on a forward path without colonial power? versus South Africa being an aberration in terms of still having that colonial type of system? Or were you sort of kept in somewhat of a bubble in terms of media coverage and so forth? I'll answer that by telling you how I spent my, I think it must have been my early 20s, just waking up at 4am every morning and watching the television. And the reason I did that is that for the first time, a non-government controlled media was being broadcast in South Africa. So the reality is that the government controlled all the broadcast media. There were independently owned press newspapers, but restricted by very stern media laws. And so, in fact, the news that we received, we understood and we knew to be heavily controlled by the government. So, in fact, the only news that I remember receiving about the rest of Africa was how failed it was, how dire it was, how corrupt it was, how sick it was. So this is, in fact, the relentless narrative about what happens when colonizing rule ends or when the thought of communism coming or the dire prospect for the apartheid regime of the end of apartheid. In fact, our perspective of Africa was very heavily skewed. And even if it weren't because of other sources of information, of course, and black people and, and, and apartheid-resistant people drew on, nonetheless, there was a sense of a difference between South Africa and the rest of the continent. And so you'll still see that manifested in the ways that we black South Africans and, and other South Africans think about the rest of the continent, as though we are not one, as though we are not a continuity. And that continues to be a huge problem, and that is definitely a legacy of apartheid. What about your views of the rest of the world then? As you were a child, becoming a teenager and so forth, did you have negative thoughts of 
the West insofar as, you know, Britain and the Netherlands and France had all been these former colonial powers. Did you perceive them to be of the same brush as the apartheid regime? Or did you have an impression that by that point in time they had developed and moved past that? That's an interesting question. My parents were very alert to the idea of who was innocent and who was guilty. So, for instance, they were clear that just because Afrikaans people were most directly associated with the regime, that this didn't mean that white English-speaking South Africans were innocent of the realities of apartheid. Because as they always pointed to me out to me, it is those people who moved directly into the neighborhoods from which they were removed. And this, I think, as well is reflected in uh, attitudes towards those former colonizing powers, because we were aware that they had been in terrible, terrible realities of empire and colonialism. And we understood these. Our, our teachers were resistant and, and didn't teach only according to the syllabus. But, you know, there wasn't just a, an attitude about the West. There was also the attitude about the second world, the non-aligned world and the communist world and great veneration for Cuba. And we knew that people like Tabo Mbeki had um, gone to the Soviet Union. So there was a, a sense of the world as perhaps this is also a very South Africa centered vision, but the world was very involved in South Africa. And at the same time, the world felt very distant at a less political and public way, but in a more private way, the world felt incredibly distant. I always felt as though the rest of the world was unreachable, really, whether it was nearby African countries or the, the ones you've just mentioned. They, they just felt that I would never, ever get there. Now the world feels, again, very much involved in South Africa, but in ways that I really regret, uh, particularly around consumerism. It felt as though in the immediate aftermath of apartheid, that was the language that we used for to define our new freedom was through consumerism and that shows such an inadequate vision of what freedom is for us we, but we, we may have been so focused on resistance that i think the definition of freedom we gave less detail to it mm -hmm. and we suffered for that reality you've won awards for your poetry i was wondering when you were growing up in south africa if through the arts, things like music, poetry, there was an element of resistance or even just trying to offer hope through the black community in the same kind of way that in the United States we see with music that you can trace back to the time of slavery. Absolutely. I, I think that the fact that the apartheid government was so focused on censorship of the arts demonstrates that even they were aware how powerful this form of um, imagination and activity and collective as well as individual practice, how powerful it could be and how much it held the potential for shaping ideas and, and for shaping people's desire for liberation. That very much was reflected in the way that music and poetry and film and dance and theatre, all of which I experienced during those, those days. I even, in the 1980s, got to know people who were themselves poets, because my experience of poetry until then had always been the official channels 
actually meeting people who were poets was a, a revelatory experience for me. I didn't myself start writing poetry until 1999 when I took an evening class in it. But learning the fact that one could write oneself, even receiving antipartheid poetry and music and film, that was about other people's activities. But to imagine that I myself could practice, that came from actually meeting people who were poets, people like Rashila Nair and Rustam Kazain and Louise Green, who I got to know in the late 80s and early 90s. And that, for me, was a, a transformative moment in my my own ability to imagine writing but certainly during apartheid i would say that the arts were the most direct way that people encountered a vision of liberation and this was also reflected in the way in which i think the liberation movements also approached the arts and i would say aside from the fact that there isn't a prominent uh, state role in the arts you know, in the same way as during the anti-apartheid movement. But uh, today, I think the arts continue to be a place where people think about and practice resistance and liberation. And I always think about the way that poetry and other arts were present during the student movements of 2015 and 2016, where poetry was on the placards of some of the students. I think that even the feminist character of those protests were a result of the feminist movement manifesting itself since the late 1990s in poetry and other forms of art that really touched people's lives very directly. Even in the post-apartheid era, I think that that is very evident, the power of art, I mean. Mm -hmm. And how much did your experience growing up in South Africa drive your desire to become a poet? I would say that as a longer term part of my history, that is evident, that is clear. In the, the more immediate way, I didn't think about poetry as a way for me to manifest my resistance. I think that I had been affected in, in very interior, in very private ways, uh, by apartheid as well as, unfortunately, also by sexual violence. And as a result, a lot of my response to that time had to be very internal. I, I had to grapple with very interior traumas. And it was only in becoming a student and learning about the power of teaching that I, I felt that this was going to be the direction that I would take. It was later after I had already started those studies that I discovered the idea of writing poetry myself. And as I mentioned, this was from my friends around me who were brilliant poets and who grappled with the realities of the situation, whether it was public or private. It was then that I, I learned about the possibilities of, of poetry. So it was only when I was about 30 that I, I really, in any serious way, started with, with that practice. And certainly it has sustained me in ways both exterior and interior and i'm grateful for it every day you know it, it makes me think in completely new ways it makes me think in non-habiba ways which are, are very good for me were you in college when apartheid finally ended i was 25 in 1994 okay. so i okay. went to university from 1997 and uh, when i was 17 or 18 and yeah, so I, there were seven years from 
being really a, an adult until apartheid officially ended. It was during that time that really transformative things were happening in the political system. The 1986 boycotts and the beginning of negotiations, which at that point was secret, of course, between the ANC and the nationalist government, and the, eventually the release of Nelson Mandela and Codessa and all of those really remarkable world history and South African history developments. And um, yeah, they were part of my, my youth and of my growing up. And then that what felt like a remarkable thing, which was to stand in those queues and feel what felt like a practice of liberation, to actually vote for the first time. I think in more holistic ways about liberation now, but that was truly meaningful to be able to vote for the first time. I think some people, to my astonishment, were immediately quite cynical about voting. The second time we voted, they didn't get out of bed on that day and, and go vote because they, they felt disillusioned or maybe they felt non-nationalist or whatever their attitude was. But for me, it continues to mean a huge amount of vote every year because of what you've just said, which is it was part of the strategy of apartheid, which just to take a tiny minority of the population under 10% and make it into the majority. And the way they did that was to create artificial countries and make black people citizens of these artificial, small, weak countries in order to rob them of the South African citizenship. So the, the question of citizenship continues to be really important because it allows that practice of being a unity, a collective. And at the same time, knowing how nationalism does work and how citizenship is used to, for instance, limit who qualifies as a citizen, bisexuality, for instance, or by migration status, immigration status. It, there are ways in which one should be duly very concerned about the ways that citizenship can be a constricting and oppressive fact. But for me, it nonetheless remains so deeply precious that possibility of what my parents did not have and what my grandparents lost and did not have and so especially seeing older people voting for the first time was so moving was so meaningful i retain that reverence for, for that act of 1994. when apartheid ended obviously Later, there were the Truth and Reconciliation Committees and so forth. What was the transition like socially? Suddenly the barriers had technically gone down, but on a social, practical, interpersonal level, was there already a certain amount of interaction and relaxation, or was it awkwardness there? What, what was the transition like? It was such a complicated time. I highly recommend novels for exploring this in subtle ways. So Nadia David's novel about that in-between time. The reality was, because I was a student at UCT with friends at UWC, I was part of a group that in any case had a certain 
rebellious, resistant conception of who we were. And so we were practicing in a way through who we desired, who we loved, who our friendships were, something like what you've just said, that there was already a, a mingling of a limited kind. At the same time, in reality, not much really changed because of the realities of class and of where we lived. We continued to live in very separate parts of the city and it was expensive and sometimes impossible to move and to get together without money. I also remember a very interesting shift happening where people like me were going into restaurants uh, where we probably wouldn't have been welcome before and noticing how awkward our presence was for some of the other clients and also who were serving us. There were always white waiters serving us and black people in the kitchens as though black people weren't to be seen in contact in social situations. There were still very ugly and, and continually uh, situations where people refused entry into places, clearly for racial reasons. So it was a, a complicated and messy and troubled time with some overt practices um, that were more liberatory and, and more promising, sometimes beautiful. It was certainly not an abrupt shift to integration. In fact, it was a, also a very violent time in terms of the politics. There were abrupt shifts in the political tone to severe pessimism, to possibly looking at some, some promise of resolution. And there was just a lot of disappointment and betrayal and a feeling of inadequacy of the, the way that transformation was happening. But one thing that I remember, which maybe prefigured better than any of those other things I mentioned is that I noticed that the people who were serving us in places like the waterfront were behaving very differently than they had before. They still didn't treat me particularly well, but they started to turn on a smile for the clients, which just had not happened before because as a Cape Tonian, I got used to really not necessarily bad service, but impatient service. But suddenly I started to see people smiling in a very practiced way. And that, the way that people's bodies and behavior changed because of capitalism, I think that prefigured our future far more accurately than, than what was happening in the terrain of the, the social. It's been a fascinating conversation with you today, so I really appreciate it. Is there anything else that you would like to add, though, for listeners who are wondering about life under apartheid? It's that it's very difficult for people who were not part of that system to understand it. For people who are part of similar systems, like um, in the United States, I think people grasp it very well. But for instance, young people in South Africa today find it almost impossible to grasp the ways in which and the levels at which apartheid shaped one's life and one's mind, one's relationships with others. I sometimes meet with young people because of my work as a poet, and we speak about the fact that I myself am a deeply racist person because I grew up in that deeply racist time. And this is despite the fact that I ardently believe at a conscious level that racism is 
a profound, grievous injury against other people and even against myself. But I am nonetheless a racist person. And I lived in a time when racism was the norm. And so for young people to understand how one responds to what feels like a norm, at least in the outside world, in the inside world of my friendships and my family, hopefully that was different. But yeah, it's, it's hard for people to grasp. And so I, I think that speaking more about it helps them. And I'm talking here about people in their early to mid-teens. I'm not talking about younger people who grown-up adults who obviously have a very sophisticated grasp of, of this, this situation. But yeah, the, just how difficult it is and how we must continue to do that work so that we can understand why its legacy is so strong. It's been really fascinating talking to you today. I really appreciate it. Stay tuned. After this short break, I'll have details of the next episode and an exciting new project for 2023. Hi, I'm Andrew, host of the podcast Our Last Mill. Every episode I talk with a guest about grief, loss, and food. My guests are given a chance to honor their relationships with someone special and discuss the meals that they shared together. New episodes come out every other Wednesday on Apple, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, and I hope you'll join me. In the meantime, I encourage you to share a meal with someone you love. Are you confident when you turn on the TV that you understand what's going on in the world and with your money? The worlds of finance and economics are complicated, and I've done the legwork so that you don't have to. At edX, our motto is educate and execute, bringing you information to help you understand what's going on in the markets, with your money, and in the world around you, keeping you informed. Check out edX podcast for your weekly dose of financial and economic updates. That's E-D-E-X podcast on Instagram and across streaming platforms. Check it out. In the next episode, I stay in Africa and explore one of the largest and yet most overlooked empires of all time, the Songhai Empire. Also, coming in January, I move into the realm of crime with Kansas City Crime, a podcast featuring true stories of the famous, the solved, and some of the remaining unsolved mysteries in Kansas City. Here's a sneak peek. Well, stone the flaming crows. It's time for Dan to do the Harry. Watch out for the next podcast and follow Dan's activities at www.danielmainwaring.com.